0: I'm Dwayne Schultes, and in this Vital Health Podcast, we're speaking with Amy M. Miller, recently appointed as the president of the Pharma Foundation. She has held nonprofit leadership roles for nearly 20 years in D.C., including positions as the president and CEO of the Society for Women's Health Research and executive vice president of the Personalized Medicine Coalition. Good morning, Amy. How are you?
1: Good morning. It's good to see you.
0: We're also joined today by my colleague, Joe Hemming, VT's U.S. business director and a card-carrying neuroscientist. Uh, Good morning, Joe. How are you?
2: Good morning, Duane. Always a pleasure, sir. And it's great to be here with Amy. You've recently
0: taken over about a year ago, two years ago, Pharma Foundation CEO. What exactly do you do here?
1: We fund biomedical research. It's okay. as simple as that.
0: Thank you. Nice, nice to meet you today. We're done. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. So what, when you say biomedical research, what do you, what do you mean practically? What, what sort of research are you doing?
1: We fund in four categories, drug delivery, drug discovery, translational medicine, and value assessment and health outcomes research. Those are our four core programs, and all of them are designed to underpin the pharmaceutical industry. We mostly fund early career researchers, pre-docs, post-docs, and early career researchers who have just entered academe. Our goal in funding those folks uh, threefold. One, so that they can be an external partner to the industry when they become full-fledged scientists. Two, so that industry can hire them to serve uh, within companies. And then three, to teach the next generation of drug hunters.
0: Because of the relationship with pharma, do you then try to integrate the decision with the pipeline that is going on within the industry, or are you trying to do things that's more more experimental to de-risk things? How do you see this strategically working together?
1: Absolutely. We are a nearly 60-year-old organization, and we were funded by pharmaceutical companies in early days to start and grow the field of toxicology. And so that's solely what we funded for about the first decade. In the second decade, we did the same for the field of pharmacology, just the basic interactions between uh, drugs and bodies. And since then, we've been able to grow and seed other fields and pivot. We set up and sunset research projects all the time. And we sunset them when others start funding them. So, for example, we funded genomics research before the NIH did and funded informatics before the NIH did. But once the NIH takes up a mantle, we stop funding that area because there's so much risky and uh, research that may not work. That's where we want to place our bets.
0: So, Joe, the ecosystem, you were a bench researcher. But you also ran when you were at Pfizer running their policy programs. You did a lot of work with academic research, sort of in parallel to what Amy's doing, but at the corporate side. How do you see these dovetailing together within the ecosystem?
2: Yes, we did. Uh, It was a wonderful uh, experience for me working with pharma, the Pharma Foundation. I love the interactions that are funded, or I should say the projects that are funded by the Pharma Foundation, uh, because it's so critical to get those young physicians, clinicians, clinician scientists steep in the field of biopharmaceuticals because without their understanding of how this ecosystem works, it's just not going to, you know, it, it's not beneficial to, the, uh, to medicine and, and as well to 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 their own careers and picking up on that
0: increasingly a lot of these new technologies are are many ways like supply chains if you look at car t it's a manufacturing supply chain it's extremely complex you know biomanufacturing if you look at say crispr cas9 that becomes almost a again a technical platform with gene editing i mean we're getting really the lines between biomanufacturing bioengineering and pharmaceuticals are becoming blurred. How do you choose those projects, Amy? What is the baseline for you to decide? We're going to throw our resources and put our weight behind this and not that, first part. And secondly, how do you select the academics who you choose to be graced with this funding? How do you make that call?
1: Uh, first of all, a little bit on process. Sure. Half of our selection committee is academic. Half are from industry. Do they play nice? They play very nicely (laughs) together. And referring back to what Joe was saying, that interaction at the committee level is very nice as well. Because we have these senior academics and these senior uh, drug developers. And they're talking about what's not being funded by the NIH. And those are the projects we pick. Um, Our committee is not afraid to invest in someone who might fail. Our committee is not afraid to invest in a new school doing a new thing. They do not like throwing stuff at the wall. Sure. They don't like Me Too projects. And they're downright offended when somebody's trying to recreate a wheel that has already, already been, been made. made. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we're trying to tighten up our process. And so the committee sees fewer of those. But the process itself of having everyone talk about these areas is... Um, it is very nice and and suits the pharmaceutical industry as well. And then, um, with regard to the future of the industry, you're absolutely right. how these medicines get into the human body, attack a tumor, fix underlying biology, this is a growing area. So we, we have a committee that looks only at drug delivery. And that committee looks at some crazy types of projects. And it's very exciting to see those get picked.
0: And when you have a quote unquote crazy type of project come in, how is that presented to you? Is it a application process like a formal proposal do they come in and pitch is it a you know is it a three minute vc meeting i mean how does this actually work
1: well that would be fun i might start that <laughs> um, we have a very academic process much like the nih uh, so for drug delivery uh, what we were talking about we have a letter of interest people send in a letter of interest. Our committee says, yes, please submit a full proposal. It's much like an NIH proposal, except for we do allow the researchers to put in a personal statement. So we understand their motivation. We understand why they're looking to do something. And especially if their project is risky and may fail, it allows them the opportunity to say, why well, should we should invest in it anyway.
2: There is a critique among many, some, that the NIH doesn't do things that are chancy enough that are flyers enough Um, uh, it's not like we're talking about you know throwing stuff at the wall but what is your response to that and how do you you as, as the head of the foundation of the pharma foundation how do you feel about do they do enough of that should they do more and how do you fit into that how does your foundation fit into that
1: I like to think of the foundation as discovering areas of research that should be invested in by others. We don't have a ton of money. We just spend about $3 million annually on about 40 researchers. So that's very little money compared to the NIH. And when we see a proposal we think the NIH might fund... We don't fund it. Yeah, exactly. We just pick different things. Now, with regard to commercialization, um, we, we are funded by the pharmaceutical industry itself. And what we do is to underpin that industry. With regard to commercialization, our committee is okay with a long lead time. So we do invest a lot in basic biology, basic pathways, understanding the physiology of diseases that are not well understood. We invest in that as well as unique delivery systems or unique data programs, if we're looking at health outcomes research, for example.
0: How has this changed? You mentioned that the change in focus over the last 20 years has been a, you know, essentially a move from molecules to more science, even delivery, and, you know, even computational science, et cetera. You mentioned this Absolutely. in your introduction. Where do you see this going right now then from a research perspective? How do you see this being targeted next year, the year after? Where do you see the focus moving?
1: I think we're in an exciting time for science, and we're going to see more and more artificial intelligence. We're going to see more synthetic biology. We're going to see more big data helping guide drug discovery uh, moving forward. And it's my hope, you know, that we can continue to be an organization that pivots to fund that research that industry relies on, needs done, or frankly just wants to experiment with.
0: So Jill made a really good point about the lack of knowledge we see often coming out of universities when you've you know you've been a bench researcher or basic researcher. And I think in this town, again, we often see this misconception that, oh, once we have a molecule that's IP, we have a drug. And there's an enormous gap there. How do you see your role in trying to fill in that knowledge gap that exists between, okay, just because you get IP out of college or out of a university or out of a spin-out, how do you actually get that to a product?
1: I'm glad you asked that question we're starting to highlight our researchers. So if you look at our social media, you'll see the people we pick in research. I just met someone who received a faculty starter grant roughly a dozen years ago, got IP, and now he started a company to make the drug and is working on the FDA process and that's 12 years which is extraordinarily fast yeah I know for something to come out of an academic lab and start to enter the commercial space The
0: timeline is normally 20 years
1: it's amazing that he's doing it anyway he's on our selection committee because we want to keep that vibrancy we want the people who do it and frankly having him on both sides of the academic industry aisle is also super fantastic so the way we keep things fresh though is always always looking for those new voices. And often where we find them are people we funded 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they may be an industry, they may be an academia, but they understand the value of the Pharma Foundation taking chances on new researchers, and they're willing to invest their time and effort in finding them.
2: Those are your success stories, or the, the foundations.
1: Absolutely.
2: Success stories. That's, that's wonderful. I love to hear that.
1: I was also surprised when I first started here that we funded J. Craig Venter in 1973 when he returned to the United States from Vietnam. Interesting. so we could argue, you know, that we started personalized medicine.
0: (laughs) For better or for worse, Amy, thank
2: you. So you ended up in personalized (laughs) medicine (laughs) in a big way.
0: So it all all goes full circle. Or or the world's incestuous, I'm not sure. (laughs) So, Joe, getting back to this gap, why do you think this exists, this misconception about you know, I invented this, we get a drug. There's a huge amount of work that needs to go on there. Just some of the comments we saw around some of the early COVID vaccines, for example, where the European Commission, when Oxford announced they had a positive phase two, the European, some members of the European Commission were saying, we should get this drug for free and it should be available tomorrow. I mean, th- I mean, these things are crazy, but they actually get out there.
2: Why is that first? Up? Well, <clears throat> that is a great question. In my Pfizer days, the, one of the first things that we developed, the, the team that I was involved in, was a slide a powerpoint slide showing the various areas of expertise within the biopharmaceutical industry or within Pfizer and it ranges from medicinal chemists to organic chemists to you know engineers and you know all the things that goes in and it it is in an enormous list of specialties and i think that is a really great way of 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 saying the complexity is so great that even people within the within a company that are part of that whole you know internal ecosystem only know a very small part of what is going on there. That is, they have an appreciation for you know the lab bench to you know to a manufacturing facility where you know the, the pills are, are are stamped out and, and and bottled, but all of those individual areas of expertise work in this un- unbelievably complex environment. And, and that just isn't understood by someone who's working in a bench, who's doing basic research, who maybe is developing an animal model. So that's not a bad thing. It's not a negative that they don't understand all that. But it's, it's hard to get that kind of knowledge, the breadth of, of the experience within, uh, within a company. Uh, it's hard to make that understood to the general public and even to scientists.
0: And Amy, this is something that through all your career since I've known you over a decade now, you've always excelled at making those connections. What do you see are the challenges now about what you're doing here and trying to make that research relevant, say, from a policy perspective? How do you actually connect those dots?
1: The research we do largely is academic but we have we have done policy relevant research and we're planning some for example the inflation reduction act past. And as you know, um, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services is now allowed to use research to quote unquote, negotiate the price of a therapeutic. The problem is the body of research they have to pick from is lacking a lot of very important factors on race and ethnicity, on gender, on disability status, on socioeconomic status, this is all missing. And so when we look at the heterogeneity of the United States, both biologically and with demography, we're going to miss some very important things and so we fund a lot of research in this area. And right now, we do have a competition where we're basically saying to researchers, we need new empirical data collected from patients with these diseases so that we can truly understand and value a medication. I, for example, have eosinophilic esophagitis, which is a rare disease. I'll spare you the details on what it is. But the only drug to ever come to market for EOE is dupixent, which is um, a drug for atopic dermatitis first, and then it was approved by the FDA for a few other indications before it got to EOE. And I'm very grateful that Sanofi and Regeneron continue to invest in r and I'm a little concerned that if we don't uh, take care of the policy environment correctly, maybe the next rare disease won't get a therapeutic. Um, so that's an example of some of the research we fund on the policy value assessment value of medicine side. Now we have also set up in Sunset in the past, different programs on regulatory affairs. In October of last year, the FDA published a white paper saying, We have a lot of digital health products and tools that are in drug applications, which is fantastic, but we need to answer some questions so that we continue to use them. And so we are currently running a competition where we're going to invest in research, looking at digital health tools for regulatory affairs, for a drug application. And we're looking at that through an equity lens because it's okay to have a cool new tool, but if someone in the Medicare population can't use the tool, then maybe it shouldn't be used in drug development. On the other hand, let's take itch for example, it's very likely a wearable will be a better measure of relieving itch than any other measure that we currently have. So I think this is a very exciting area. I'm extremely thrilled that FDA have these research questions they want answered, and I have the power to empower researchers to answer them.
0: How long does it take? Get, if someone applies, well, how, how quickly do you turn this stuff around?
1: Very quickly. So let's say a decision is made on, um, I'll just pick April 1st. Uh, the person can start getting the research funding in August. Or oh, they can also take it in December or they can take it, you know, Q1 of the next year. And we are proud of the fact that once we give you money, you can start spending it immediately or you can wait until your semester break.
0: What about NIH? How long does NIH take to clear a grant? Do you know?
1: I don't know for sure, but we have NIH reviewers on our selection committees and they assure me that we're faster.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good to hear, I guess, on one level. What other large areas of investments are you guys targeting in the next year or two?
1: We are investing in that uh, FDA research for regulatory affairs on digital health tools and equity issues. And that is open right now. So if anybody's listening to it, uh, this podcast before the end of summer, take a look at the call, respond to it. Um, We continue to invest in value assessment and health outcomes research. That research field is becoming more and more important. And we do have rolling uh, requests for grants and applications, and then sometimes we do special calls for policy pieces or thought pieces in certain areas. So continue to look at that. And then uh, bread and butter is drug delivery, drug discovery, translational medicine. And so for all the researchers out there, both established and and not established, um, take a look at what we're looking for, especially if you are looking at something risky or if you're a professor and you have a grad student who's got a crazy idea and you're not sure where to send them at the NIH shoot them over to the foundation. Just applying for the grant through the foundation is a learning experience in and of itself. And we are now starting to send feedback to applicants. And so if an applicant doesn't win the award the first time, we encourage people to revise and resubmit. I think it's part of the learning process on how to be a scientist.
2: Well, that's certainly the way the NIH operates. Many, many grantees do not hit pay dirt. The first time around, and it's a, and it's definitely a learning process having, having done it in uh, in my early days with uh, in at the University of Wisconsin.
0: What percentage of your applicants have never applied before?
1: That is a great question, and I would say most of them, because we know there's a very tiny percentage who reapply. We do have 400 applicants every year, and we only fund 40, which is a 10% pay line. I would love to raise more funding so that we can fund more people and make that pay line a little more impressive, Um, but we are picking the best of the best. Um, The other aspect to the foundation, which is unique, is we allow international students to compete for our awards. Well, that's
0: interesting, because the the NIH is often just restricted unless it's in partnership to non-U.S. universities. That's
1: right, and we get thanked from international students that they're allowed to compete on an equal level for funding.
2: Many people would say that a ten percent pay line is appropriate, that getting the best of the best, you know, is, is the key. And you should weed out those who don't if there are if if they are persistent and they want to come back, that that's great. But I, I think a lot of listeners would, would agree that a ten percent sounds pretty decent.
1: I'm glad they like it. I'm a generous person, number one, and I'm in the room when the the second 10% are being discussed and And maybe it wouldn't go all the way to 20, but there is a group that we don't fund uh, that that we really really want to. (laughs)
0: Uh, That's always so hard, too, when you're right on the border there. It's always tough. Sitting on selection committees when I was at the university and you come down to two candidates, it's always really hard. And you you wish you could hire both.
1: Yes, absolutely. But but
0: unfortunately, you can't. Joe, one of the big problems we have now is there's a lot of gaps in research. What are the core areas right now where you think we need more research focus where you think the Pharma Foundation should be dedicating is it in small molecules for neurology? I mean, what are these areas where you see an enormous need right now?
2: Well, if that isn't an enormous need, there is no there is no example of a, an enormous need. Um, it's very frightening. And, you know, Dwayne your research just recently showed how this this absolute dearth of large molecule therapies that you know we see in in the neurosciences. That doesn't surprise me as a neuroscientist because large molecules don't cross the blood-brain barrier. I think one of the things that scares me about the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that it really looks like it it could hurt the neuroscience area, an area where we fully understand the enormous cost to society, the cost to you know the patients who are uh, and their families suffering from dementia, Alzheimer's, and and related uh, neurodegenerative diseases. One of our favorite topics, Dwayne, we go back and forth on all the time are uh, antibiotics and, no. and anti-infectives. And right now, AMR, acute microbial, AMR, microbial the, resistance, the, the horrible. It is a horrible problem. It's a growing problem. It continues persists year after year, and it just gets worse. So those are a couple. Obviously, there are some tremendous uh, opportunities going, coming forward now with the MRNA technologies, very, very exciting. When you think about the number of patients who have been treated uh, with the MRNA vaccines, that's an experiment, quote unquote experiment, that would never have been done except for a, a pandemic. There are issues about adverse events and you know it's, it's not all crystal clear, but when you think of the billions of patient You know, patients that have been treated, and the data that is going to come over over you know the the next several years. There's a lot there, and I think it's it's very enticing to think about what is to come or what could come.
1: It harkens back to where we started about the mismatch between public perception and reality. Sure, because it looks like we got a drug in nine months, but that. MRNA technology was 20 or 30 years old, depending on when you start the clock. Absolutely. Um, Also, the American public didn't understand that there were MRNA therapeutics for MERS and SARS, but we didn't reach pandemic levels, and so we didn't tell that story. When I joined the foundation, it was after COVID or during COVID, and it was very clear during COVID that scientists have a unique and novel responsibility, unlike ever before, to explain their science, not only to other scientists, but to policymakers, the media, and even the lay public. And so another aspect of the foundation that I've recently started is educating our young scientists on how to communicate their science, because We used to be able to stay in our ivory towers and just talk amongst ourselves, but we can't do that anymore. COVID blew that that wide open. And so we do have an opportunity. And I think the scientists that we fund very much enjoy the fact that we're getting their messages out there. We're helping them to explain science. And I hope it makes them a more responsible, responsive scientist in the future.
0: I'd like to touch on some of your tool bag a bit that you guys are working with. If we look at real areas of need, going forward and there's a generally ubiquitous opinion at least those of us who work in this sector that we really need good evaluation tools once stuff comes to market you know whether that's real world evidence whether those are managed entry agreements or something like that so post approval how are we measuring this stuff how are we expanding labels the, the way we're doing it now isn't working there's so much pushback politically what are you doing on the foundation side to look at some of these aspects of post-approval real-world evidence platforms, etc.? I would think that this is a, a ripe area for you.
1: It is. We do have a program, Value Assessment Health Outcomes Research, where those types of projects uh, come into play. And um, we usually fund the earlier career side. I'm considering another program program. That looks at that exactly and it wouldn't just be for early career researchers it would be for established researchers because you're right there's a lot of information that needs to be done in that space and um, we haven't done a, a full ballast of research furthermore I like a moat and so I'm trying to think who else would fund this yeah and there's really no other funders and so I'm very open to ideas like these and this has been brought up a few times and so I think it's an area will open up very soon
0: yeah because everyone always- says well we should have managed entry agreements and we should have post approval agreements show up pay on performance and these things and it sounds great but man when you start looking at it it gets really hard Joe from your perspective what would be the benefit of having a robust post approval system that would allow validation of targets and reimbursement on quality would well, you
2: think that would help oh, uh, no no question <laughs> as you say it's very 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 difficult yeah uh, to do it seems to me it's the the kind of area that that the foundation is poised to to do and aid you know the best researchers, uh, in in an area like that. I think I think that would be terrific.
0: And I think you could bring together the multi multidisciplinary needs that are required. You would be able to get the data scientists and the researchers, and you know play kingmaker there or queenmaker I, in your case, I uh, Amy? Queenmaker. Yes, right. queenmaker. Yeah. I
2: I I'm sure that your head swims with what you could do. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> everyone has that. We deal with that all the time. We have opportunity costs. If we're doing so, something here, we can't do something over there. You, you've talked about just the communication of science. It's science it has to be communicated in, a, in an effective way so that everyone can understand it. It's a gaps in knowledge that creates the, the negativity about science and scientists and in and, and the pharmaceutical industry. That is something that where you could have a huge impact. You know, Amy, When I, I was really excited when you took this job. I knew that you were the kind of person that, that, that could come into the Pharma Foundation and do, you know, and just do the fantastic job that you are. And, and clearly, you've made huge progress here. Given your role at and, and head of policy in the Personalized Medicine Coalition, where you and I first met uh, back in the day when when, uh, when I was at Pfizer, the understanding of personalized medicine and, and stratified medicine or whatever terminology that you, you know, one wants to use, I think it's very, very poor. People don't understand why are we looking at these very narrow niche products? Why don't companies just make products for cancer that cures all cancers, <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is what people, when I talk to people, this is what they want. They believe that there will be a cure for Alzheimer's disease. I think that's highly, highly, highly unlikely. You're a scientist as well. There seems to me to be a a tremendous number of opportunities to get the kind of, I guess, the information that public needs to know about this very highly scientific, highly specific types of medicines. How can you approach that at the foundation?
1: I think personalized medicine continues to be an extremely exciting area. And I think a therapeutic manufacturer would love a pill that cured every single cancer. That is wonderful. Everybody would love to see that. Unfortunately, science is hard science is complicated and the more we learn about the genetics of cancer we understand that there are drivers and sometimes we can hit a driver um, you know Herceptin was a breast cancer drug and now Herceptin can be used on any HER2 mutation in a tumor that's exciting um, I was talking about Dupixent, a therapeutic I use and it targets a specific interleukin pathway and so any disease that's motivated by that pathway is going to respond and so we're seeing more and more of this mechanistic approach to a treatment rather than a disease or a location, and that's exciting. Now, how do we explain it to the American people? Unfortunately, I think they have to benefit from it. For example, having a lung cancer patient, loved one who benefits from a targeted therapy rather than going through chemo and radiation. That seems like a miracle to people, and then they understand the fit between my Specific disease and this specific treatment.
2: I I think what's so cool about what you just said is is when you find new uses for existing products, it's enormously efficient. It's it's very exciting because all of a sudden you're doing a clinical trial uh, in a different patient population and with a different you know with a different issue with a different medical issue, and within months or years, very short time frame, you get new therapies with an old, quote-unquote, an old therapy.
1: I also say this as a scientist. When you have a drug that works for you, it is like a miracle. So EOE means sometimes I feel pain swallowing. Sometimes I can't swallow, and that's very uncomfortable, and everybody swallows all day long, right? And just having that clinical benefit of no longer feeling pain when I swallow apple skin, that's amazing to me. And so the other part that is... The miracle of this drug came to market for itchy skin and now it helps me swallow. That's fantastic.
0: Obviously the science is leading us to more and more targeting as we get a, the more robust genetic profile of therapeutics. The problem is the science is leading us that way. It's leading us to more and more specialization, but the politics are pushing us completely the other way. They don't want that because there's economic problems there, which is why there needs to be evolution. There's so much hostility. We're here in D.C. We're right, you know, not on K Street, but pretty darn close. (laughs) You know, in the belly of the beast, as it were, Amy. There's so much hostility towards the industry now. How did we get here? How did this happen?
1: Well, I think the way we get away from any sort of hostility is talk about the cures we make and talk about the treatments we make and remind the American public that, everything will eventually be generic and that we invest in the technologies the world benefits from. And we're a leader in the biopharmaceutical industry. It creates jobs, it improves life. I think the positive message is better than trying to figure out what's going on in the minds of people. Just keep it positive. I have a drug that works for my body and it was not on the market just 14 months ago.
0: Now we have a cure for hepatitis C that soon in a year or two is going to be generic. Amitabh Chandra made the point is, that drug is now going to be free, and even if you're a Martian on Mars, and you have hepatitis, you will probably take Herceptin.
1: Going back (laughs) to mRNA, we're about to have another cancer vaccine, cancer cure, cancer treatment, one product, doing all three things. That's a miracle, that's magic, that's exciting, and that is on the near-term horizon.
2: How does the Pharma Foundation work with the individual company foundations?
1: We have different relationships with them all. Uh, just for the listeners, um, many pharmaceutical manufacturers have their own foundations, and they have very different foci. For example, some company foundations focus solely on developing countries. Some focus only on maternal health. Uh, some focus on educating the world. They all have a different uh, focus, which is good. Absolutely, and well, then you can be
0: complementary as well. Because then yeah. no one's, you're not competing or stepping on each other. You can all focus in your. And own I spend.
1: love Emote. And sure. we do what we do, and nobody else does it. Uh, we also have the ability to pivot very rapidly. If we wanted to stop funding one thing and start funding something else, I could literally do it tomorrow and there would be nothing uh, standing in the way. And back to your point, we can get the money out the door very quickly. And so the foundations are aware of what we do and it is complimentary. And I like what the foundations of pharmaceutical industries do as well. I think there's a lot of corporate philanthropy that we don't talk about.
0: So Amy, what do you see happening three to five years from now, mid to long term? Where do you see this going?
1: I think we have an amazing opportunity in health tech assessment. So I was surprised to learn that the Pharma Foundation is one of the few places HTA researchers know annually there will be a competition for investigator-led research. So it's not consulting contracts. It's not a contract with a company. It is not an RFP that's sent out to just a few for selection. It is an open investigator-led, true competition, and it's every year. That's power. And I'm trying to figure out where do we need to invest most in HTA because we can say – we have a special pot of money that's going to look at these things and harness this excitement and, frankly, the audience that we have to focus it in different ways. And then on the bench science side, I love when drug hunters in industry talk about some area of science that uh, they need more eyes on. Um, And then for those who may be listening and thinking about a future for themselves or their children, uh, medicinal chemists apparently are hard to come by right now (laughs) and so if you like chemistry and back
0: in they're back in fashion too they're
1: back in fashion and so that's an area of uh, future research and when we see a medicinal chemist in our application packages everybody perks up and they give it a little stronger of a look
0: it's very interesting because the last nobel prize in medicinal
2: chemistry went to a biopharma
0: ceo in san diego
1: nice i did not know that
2: amy when you took over one of the things that You know, we had a couple of initial conversations about your excitement. And when you have a chance to work with very smart people like you do, and they get it all in a room, you have chief medical officers and and chief science officers and heads of R&D, that is very rare to be able to harness that brain power, And it's not a simple matter. You don't walk into a meeting with smart people like that who are giving you (laughs) a couple hours of their time Tell us about that and, and you know, it's, it's a privilege.
1: It is. Our board are, as you said, heads of R&D and chief medical officers of major pharmaceutical companies, and they very much enjoy serving on the board. Every single one of them went through grad school, and they remember the days of looking for grants and doing a postdoc and love giving back. Obviously, they're also dedicated to science and know that they need more and good, smart people. The board frankly, have the same hiring issues. And so the fact that we're investing in the next generation is extraordinarily important. They also give hints as to where we should be directing our funding. They were extremely excited to hear about our funding, the digital health tools for regulatory affairs work, because they're all doing it in-house. But to have it done at the academic, peer-reviewed, published arena is just so much more impactful.
2: That's the kind of input you really want. Absolutely. These are the people who are on the ground who are responsible for bringing drugs forward. And for them to give you ideas, um, uh, you know, obviously that makes a, a great deal of sense. How do they get along? I should answer that question. I know how they get along. They get along great. Yeah, of
0: course, they're wonderful. We're not going to ask you to name
2: names, but uh.
1: <laughs> no they're all fantastic. This is a <laughs> no. fantastic board. Every board I've ever worked with has been, Amazing,
2: from my experience, again, not from the foundation standpoint, but from a staffer staffing heads of r and d they enjoyed each other. I saw a very congenial group who were very interested in each other, and of course, they serve on the executive committee and on the foundation. How was that experience for you?
1: It's great. Um, they're just alone. We don't have staff at our board meetings, and so I think they also like that. They also have known each other. You know, yeah. They've grown up in the field together, uh, and they're all dedicated to the foundation. And it's been an honor working with this board. They Absolutely. are very smart, uh, have great ideas, and we have a great working relationship.
2: Well, I'm sure you do.
0: Amy Miller, recently appointed as the president of the Pharma Foundation. Amy,
2: thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you, Dwayne.
2: Dr. Hamming, Joe, always a pleasure. Sir. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Joe. Always great to see you, Amy. Thank you for the hospitality. My pleasure. The
0: executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.